Well, again, good morning. It is, it is great to be with you here this morning. And, and I wanted, before we get started, I want to let you know that I am super excited about next week and what's going to happen. Um, whenever questions began to come in, one of the very first ones that we received was the following. How should a believer navigate depression? How should the church handle mental illness and things of that nature? And so when that came in, the second that I read it, God gave me an idea of the way that I would have liked to have handled it. And so we began to pursue that um, opportunity. And so what we've done is we've invited Dr. Jim Evans from Community Christian Counseling over in Terre Haute, one of the missions that we support here at church, um, who is a licensed therapist as well, PhD, very smart man for sure with a heart for God and a heart for others. And so we've invited him in to share with us. He is a professional in that area. I am not. And so I look forward to being with you and learning from him next week. It's a very serious issue in the culture in which we live. It has been for a while, but it's something that the church has always just kind of brushed aside and pushed aside and really not stepped out and really addressed. And so I look forward to beginning that process with him and hearing what he has to share with us. This would also be a great chance because it's such a pop culture topic, if you will, lots of people talking about these issues, a great chance to invite someone with you, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, maybe even someone that's dealing with such issues to hear his perspective on such things. So please consider that for next week. All right, we're excited about that. Hope to have a great crowd here uh, to hear what he has to say about those issues. Uh, this qu- initial question, the one we began answering last week, has been such a great way to kick off the series. Who wrote the Bible? How? When was it put together? And that came from a, a sixth grader. And so I, I love that question for so many reasons, because I myself had lots of these same questions growing up. Where did this book come from? How did we get it? Um, it, it seems impossible if you really think about how it exists, for it even to exist in our culture today. And all this is based upon 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul's writing to his understudy, his son in the faith, Timothy, and reminding him the importance of the scriptures. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, Timothy, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. He learned it from his mom and his grandma. It was passed down How from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's no way of knowing whether Paul, when he authored these letters, if he had an understanding of what he was truly writing And now here we would be in 2019, still reading his words and understanding the importance of his words as they pertain to this book, the Bible, that we're studying. So what I want to do is remind you of just the way we closed last week. There's way too much to try to fit in one week and really too much to try to cram into two, but but we're going to do it and, and be able to move on. So last week, we concluded with this. The Bible, as we know it, absolutely is important. It's essential in the life of a follower of Christ. Is it what we worship, though? No. No, there's only three parts to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is this incredible source for us to learn about God and His people. It's a means by which God has chosen to reveal Himself in our generations through the inspired Word of men. It is truly incredible. It's an incredible gift of God that only He could have somehow kept intact for generation after generation after generation so that we have it in our hands today. 
What is the Bible? Well, it's this amazing book, but it's not just a book. It's a library of books, 66 books, in fact, written by 40 people on three continents in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years. There's absolutely nothing else like it on planet Earth, and we have to think about that and understand that. We take it as commonplace, but it's a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. Who wrote it? Well, we talked about that last week, this idea of dual authorship. On one hand, God absolutely wrote it. But on another hand, man absolutely wrote it. Their personality is all over it. God spoke into this work, but there is the voice of man. It separates this text from every other text of any kind, including other religions throughout the entire world. But the thing about the Bible that I never realized as a kid growing up was the reality that it didn't always exist. It hasn't always been there. It wasn't until the late 4th century A.D., more than 300 years after Jesus, even though they didn't have the Bible in that time period before that, as we know it today, the Bible was officially not existent until 396 A.D. Yet the Roman Empire, before that ever happened, had declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire without the Bible. Can you imagine that? Now, we could debate all day whether or not that was a good thing, the Roman Empire doing such a thing. That's a whole other topic of discussion. But for us, how did they get to those books, these 66 books that we have, with all of the letters, the books, the original manuscripts, after the time of Jesus, what's real, what was fake, what was inspired by God, what was the opinion of man, what was really good history, but not the inspired word of God? How did we get this Bible? Just like I said last week, there's entire college degrees based on such topics. So what we're going to cover are just a few of the highlights, all right? So who decided what was going to be included in the Bible? It's a very interesting question, and a lot of people have the wrong answer to that question. Because truthfully, God is the one that honestly decided what was in the Bible. He weeded out all kinds of things that could have potentially made it their way into this book. Now, there was a process that took place by which books were decided whether they should be included in the Bible or this thing called the canon. We're going to look back at that process and see that in order for a book to be included, it must have met one of approximately six or so criteria or characteristics that I'm going to share with you in a moment. But here's the interesting thing. This list that I will share with you was not something that was comprised by a group like we would. They didn't sit down and come up, okay, if it meets all these criteria or one of these criteria, then yes, we'll include it. That never happened. This list was made after the fact. People looked back at the books that are included and said, well, all of these books seem to meet at least one of these criteria. So that's an interesting commentary on how it was made. This idea, this word, canon, simple word, it's a Greek word that means rule or measuring stick. The canon is the rule or measuring stick. It's what they went by to determine whether or not it should be included in the Bible. But there's this misunderstanding that some great body of people met together, sat down, and officially decided, these are the 66 books of the Bible, thus saith the Lord, and moved on. And that is not what happened at all. Author F.F. Bruce describes it perfectly this way. One thing must emphatically be stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canon. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognized their innate worth, and generally accepted their apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical council 
to classify the books of the canon were held in North Africa in 393 AD and Carthage, the famous one, in 397. But what these councils did was not to impose anything upon the church or the Christian communities, but rather just to arrange and organize what everybody already accepted to be what we would call the Word of God. You see, before the year 200 AD, there were already 20 of the 27 books that had been fully embraced by the church. They were accepted as apostolic. What that meant was either an apostle themselves or someone very close to an apostle was seen as the author, and that's nearly, that's nearly the entire New Testament. So here are the criteria that looking back, somehow, some way, this is what sorted out the books throughout time to get to the point where they're all put into what we would call the Bible. The first one, it was written by a prophet or apostle. Now, this does not cover every book of the Bible. If you've studied or researched the Bible, you know there's a few books in here we really truly have no idea who wrote. And if somebody tells you, for example, who wrote Hebrews, they're guessing. It might be a very educated guess, and they might be right, but we truthfully don't have absolute authority for that. And as a result, Hebrews was not in that first 20 of the 27 books that were considered part of the New Testament. It took a long time for Hebrews to finally be recognized by the church. It was recognized because of other factors that we'll mention here in just a moment. The second one, it was written by those associated with a recognized prophet or apostle. These are books that were literally written by a close compadre, a friend, an understudy of one of those people. Therefore, the book was seen as representative under the instruction thereof or the teaching of that apostle or prophet. The greatest example of this in the New Testament would be the book of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Dr. Luke, who was not an apostle of Jesus. A lot of people think he was one of the disciples because he's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He was not. He was an acquaintance, maybe, of some of the apostles for sure, but he was definitely a disciple of Paul. He followed Paul through all the New Testament journeys that he went on and recorded the book of Acts, and so it's an incredible story. The third one, truthfulness. <laughs> Seems obvious. Is it true? Truthfulness of the writing. If anything were found in a writing that wasn't true, it would be dismissed as not from God. For me, this is where modern day things come into play. So when you read this story about this obscure little tiny archaeological find over in Israel or in, in that area, and you hear they found this city that they didn't think existed because there's never been any recorded history of it other than in the Bible. And you're like, oh, look, the Bible's true. They just keep proving it time and time again. For me, that's exciting. For most people, no one cares. I get that. But still, it, it is an important thing. God himself said, Deuteronomy 18.20, if a prophet claims to be speaking from me and what he said is not true, then he has not spoken from me. It is not from the Lord if that is the case. If it is from God, it has to be accurate. The fourth one, faithfulness to previously accepted writings that were already part of the canon, for example, the Old Testament. This is where the book of Hebrews fits in. In terms of the church's acceptance of it, Hebrews not only comes, agrees with the Old Testament, but it helps to explain it even further. It gives clarity to what had been taught in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and how that Old Covenant, that Old Testament merges into this Jesus and how he fulfilled that Old Covenant and brought the New Covenant so beautifully into the world. This is the reason why many of the other books, there have been lots in the last 20 years or so, there have been lots of other gospels and things that have been recorded. People talked about movies made about these things, other ancient writings that existed. The reason many of those writings aren't included is because they don't agree with even the teachings of Jesus. Some of those gospels don't agree with what Jesus himself said, and so they were dismissed by that early church as not part of God's authority and his writings. The fifth one, 
The writings were confirmed by Christ, by Jesus, by an apostle or a prophet. The Christian church had no difficulty at all adopting those early 39 books of the Old Testament. Why? Well, because of things like what Jesus said in Luke 24, 44. He told them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. In other words, Jesus was confirming the law of Moses, <clears throat> the prophets, and the Psalms, that they were accurate and they were true. Jesus cited 14 different Old Testament books in his speaking. He believed that the people of the Old Testament actually existed, and he referenced each and every one of the big characters for sure. Jesus believed that the stories of the Old Testament, men, the stories we were taught as children, were factual, that they were not mythological. I actually found a great resource that I originally included in this message, but it just made it way too long. And so I took a bunch of passages where Jesus is the one confirming and affirming and reaffirming these people and these stories, and they're right outside on a piece of paper on your way out. So if you want to look up those passages and see, hey, this is where Jesus talked about Moses. This is where Jesus talked about Noah, Adam and Eve, marriage, you name it. It's back there on that piece of paper. I'm also going to record a little snippet, a little short podcast for this week. So if you'd rather listen than read, then you'll be able to do that as well. The last one, the final one, churches, the, the church of the day, the usage and recognition within the church. Ultimately, what happened was the letters that were circulated, more and more groups of Christian peoples were edified or built up by these writings, and they came together as a witness that these writings were from God. The church used these writings. They were incredibly encouraged and built up by them, and then over time, they were believed that they were indeed from God. The writings of Paul would fit into that category. So the final acceptance and recognition of the 66 books of Scripture took place at the Synod of Carthage, as it was called, in AD 397. So that was when it all became absolutely official. But there's been lots of people that had lots of problems with the Bible since then. One such problem that people often will throw out there is, hey, the Bible, there's no way it could be the same today as it was when it was originally written. It's been translated so many times that surely the meaning was lost, the impact was lost, people have changed it to, to their slants, and that has happened with some translations, absolutely. But it's not the reality of the translations that we use. Because if a translation was made from a translation, so for example, if I decided to go out and write the Bible and I started with this one, the NIV, and I went and made my translation from this one, yes, there would be lots of errors mainly because I wrote it. But there would be lots of errors because I'm translating from a translation. Most of our modern translations all come from the original Greek and Hebrew sources. We have an incredible amount of texts, ancient manuscripts, copies of the ancient manuscripts to look at and see. One of the greatest examples of this took place in 1947. It was at that point that the Old Testament was completely confirmed for its accuracy because some archaeologists found these little documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls in the West Bank of Israel. The Dead Sea Scrolls contained manuscripts of the Old Testament that dated back 1,000 years further than any other manuscript that we had to date. So they compared those ancient manuscripts with the modern ones that they had found, and here's what they found. 99.5% of the material was identical. The only difference is the 0.5% were commas and punctuation marks and some sentence structure and spelling variances that were just different in the culture. Nothing changed the meaning of anything. It's an incredible thing to see. With the New Testament, authors, scholars will call it the most reliable ancient document in all of history. Now, if you weren't familiar, if you don't remember from your 
elementary and middle school history days, old school didn't have paper, didn't have computers. They used this stuff called papyrus. It was plant-based material, and it didn't have much of a shelf life. It didn't last very long. So people hand-copied time after time those original manuscripts. So we don't have any original manuscripts of any ancient documents. They all passed away long ago, but these copies began to circulate. Some examples from secular culture, Plato, not the stuff you play with, but Plato, all right, wrote this thing called The Republic. Some of you might have had to read that in your school days a few years ago. It's a classic written by Plato somewhere around 380 B.C. The earliest copy that we have of that document dated to 900 A.D., so 1,300 years after Plato had actually recorded this work is the first copy, if you will, that we have of it. We had about ten, co- or sorry, about eight copies, seven or eight copies of that in all of existence. Caesar's Galactic Wars were written somewhere between 144 B.C. or over that time frame. The copies we have dated are about a thousand years after he wrote it. We have about ten copies of that ancient document. When it comes to the New Testament, which all of it was written somewhere between A.D. 50 and A.D. 100, there are more than 5,000 copies of those texts, all of them dated between 50 and 225 years after the original source would have been written. Further, when it came to scriptures, there were specific people, groups of people, scribes, even monks, dedicated to copying and recopying these original manuscripts. They were meticulous in their work. They checked and rechecked their work because of their purpose for doing it for the Lord. It was mandatory. They wanted it to be perfectly matched. What the New Testament writers originally wrote is better preserved than any other ancient manuscript, and it's not close. We can be more certain about the writings and times of Jesus and his words than we are certain of the writings of Caesar, Plato, even Aristotle, and Homer. And no one argues the authenticity of those great historical works, do they? You have the Bible to hold against every single one of them. The volume of discovered ancient texts supporting the writings of the New Testament are incredible. And we continue to discover new ones. Which has always led me to wonder, what was the early church service like when the body got together? Have you ever thought about that? Because Paul writes about the spiritual gift of being a pastor and what that means, how he's supposed to challenge and teach and equip the people for good works, right? How did they do that in the first century? in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, even all the way up to the 9th, 12th, 15th century. After the canon was made in A.D. 397, no pastor ever got up in front of the congregation and said, okay, everybody, I want you to open your Bibles to John 3.16. Number one, they didn't have Bibles. Number two, the books, the, chap- the, books, the, the chapters of the books weren't given until the 1200s, and the verses weren't added in until the 1500s. So it could have done any of that at all. No pastor ever said, hey, guys, we're going to read the Bible together in a year. Because no one had the Bible, and if you did, you probably couldn't have read it anyway because there was such a problem with illiteracy. It made things very different. It wasn't until the start of the Reformation and the folks like Martin Luther who challenged the Roman church and said this, the future of the church would be in the ability of the people to have their Bible in their own language in a way that they could understand. And that's exactly what we have today. With the invention of things like the printing press, for the first time it allowed everyday Christians to have and own their own Bible to study this library, this resource for themselves. Now the process in that coming about was not easy. Again, entire degrees based on this this process. There are individuals who literally gave everything, including their life. They were Christian martyrs to get you this book in your hands. 
The Bible as we know it might not have existed today without many different men over the time that that passed. One specific one was named William Tyndale. Now, if you're familiar with Christian literature and publishing, you know there's Tyndale Publishing House. Well, that is his namesake. He had nothing to do with that. But William Tyndale was a very brilliant man back in those times. Lots of people that could read had a great ability. He spoke seven languages. Imagine that. We do well to speak our one English language, right? Imagine being able to speak seven languages. He was proficient in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church, but he had one little problem. He had this compulsion, this desire. He was compelled to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. Not a popular concept in the church of the 1500s. We won't go that direction, but you can study that. What an incredible gift to humanity, justification by faith. It has been, but in 1525, the folks didn't quite agree with Mr. Tyndale. He was ultimately arrested, put on trial for heresy in the Netherlands, where at the hands of a special commission of the Holy Roman Empire, he was turned over to local officials. In October of 1536, he was bound by chain and rope, hung and burned. Why? <laughs> for what? For giving me a new access to the Bible in our native tongue. Ironically, his translation, which you can still go and find if you wish, the one which the authorities said, and I quote, not worthy of being called Christ's testament, but either Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, the Antichrist. That's what they thought about his efforts to translate the Bible into modern English. His translations, as it would turn out, became the decisive, decisive in the history of the English Bible and the English language. Nearly 100 years later, when the translators of the authorizer, as you would I call it, the King James version, debated how to translate the original Greek and Hebrew, eight out of ten times they agreed perfectly with what Tyndale had written to begin with. Something to think about. It's an amazing, it's an amazing, amazing story. When you take into consideration that only God could have begun to orchestrate all of this, the Bible and its existence today is truly a miracle. How on earth was it not destroyed somewhere? All the times the Jews were taken into captivity, all the times that society has rebelled against the Christian faith, all the, and it's still here. But to be honest, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> not even a little bit unless we use it. Unless we interact with it. Unless we learn from it. Unless we're inspired by it. Unless we actually apply what teachings are recorded for us. If we don't, it's a 2,000-year-old book that's probably going to sit on a shelf or it's an app on our phone that we'll probably delete when we start buttoning up against the storage limits on our device. We all have access to it, but the question becomes, what is the role of the Bible within your life and within my life? How do we interact with it? We live in a time where the Bible is maybe one of the easiest resources available to all mankind on the entire planet. You don't even have to buy it anymore. You don't have to turn your own pages. You actually don't have to read it. It can be read to you. You can highlight, you can talk and speak notes, and it will record them for you. You can create amazing graphics based on your favorite passages, all with just little tiny squares on your phone that you touch. It's an incredible, incredible thing. But does it matter? Has all of this access made a bit of difference in the world in which we live? Well, it turns out that last year, 2018, the Barna Research Group did a study. 
It was called The State of the Bible in America. Phenomenal study. It's interesting to read. I would encourage you to read it if you wish. I can email you the link. The first research, the first statistic that pops out seems so very encouraging. It said this, nearly half of all Americans are Bible users, 48%. Now, if you were to press pause there, wow, that's a great study. Thank you. Actually, Mr. Barnett isn't associated anymore. Mr. Mr. Uh, Kingman, Kidman, something like that. Um, great job. Great research. That's wonderful. 48%. Half of people are reading their Bibles. That would be great. But I'm a fine print person, so I read the fine print, and I will share the disturbing fine print with you. A Bible user is defined as those that engage with the Bible on their own by using, listening to, watching, praying, or using Bible text or content in any format at least three or four times a year. That's a Bible user. Three to four times a year. An actual stat, adults who use the Bible daily account for 14% of the adult population, when you think of the miraculous efforts that went into preserving this thing and making it even happen, and yet even as followers of Christ, 14% of folks actually interact with this incredible work. It's kind of disturbing. But when you read on to the study, there's some incredibly encouraging news. Two-thirds of Americans, 66%, express at least some curiosity in knowing what on earth is in that book. What does the Bible say? including nearly 30% who express a strong desire to know what that book has in it. A similar, similar number of adults, 63%, are interested in knowing more about who Jesus is. 30% also strongly agree they would like to know more about who Jesus is. In other words, two-thirds of Americans want to know more about Jesus and the Bible. Can anyone possibly help me think of a great way to help them in that pursuit. Maybe, just maybe, we could point them in the direction of a little letter in the Bible called John. But even better, maybe we could sit down with them and read it alongside them. What on earth has all this access brought to us? An unknown author said it this way, and I had it point out to me after first service, I did not realize this, even though I have some, Uh, The old Gideon Bibles, they still exist, they're still around, they still make them. And the front or the back, depending on which version you have, is this anonymous quote from an unknown author. And I truly believe it shouldn't just be in the front of the Gideon Bible, it should be in the front of every Bible because it is phenomenal. Hope you'll understand that as I read it to you. The book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's map, a pilgrim's staff, a pilot's compass, a soldier's sword, and a Christian's charter. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design. The glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Amen. 
That's not scriptural, but man, does it describe what this book is. And I would commit to you, hopefully, to learn some of that and adopt those same thoughts on this book. Alistair Begg describes the Bible very simply this way. He sums it up by saying, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, he is preached. In the epistles or letters from Paul and others, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is expected. The Bible in a nutshell, if you will. But it goes on to explain one last characteristic of the Bible that we have to get out there in the open. If you've spent time in God's word, you know this. It's a book like no other because it understands us. Now, many of you are familiar with the old school assignment. Probably some of you despise this old school assignment. Whether you were given a book or you maybe even got to select a book. Take book home. Read book. Somehow, in some way, on a piece of paper, prove to your teacher that you had indeed read said book, right? That was called a book report. I'm sure you had all kinds of methods for accomplishing that task. It's not a bad idea with the Bible to take it home and read it and to learn it and to even maybe put into words your understanding of it. It would be a great thing for you in your development. But the Bible has something else in store for us. While that's what we should be doing, it seems as if when we seek to understand the Bible, it somehow seems to understand us. As we read, it seems as if there are elements that are written directly to you and to me, even about me at certain times. It sometimes seems like it's describing us or the exact life situation that we're going through as if somebody is inside your mind or has been watching every movement of your life and then wrote those words to you. How is that possible? Have you ever had Scripture speak to you in that way? I'm not going to tell you how it's possible. I'm going to let your mind wonder and see if you can figure that out on your own. All I can say is there's a greater presence in the words of these pages than just simply words on a page like any other book. I want to remind you to end with that belief in Jesus confirms the Bible to be true because Jesus confirmed the Bible and those things therein to be true. And it's this belief in Jesus that we should all start with. A person does not have to accept every word in that book in order to believe in Jesus. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to believe in Jesus. And through belief in Jesus, we will develop belief in the truth of the words of that book because Jesus did. When we share these things with our friends and coworkers, belief in Jesus is where we should start. Belief in Jesus is what we long for, for those that we love, for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, even those people that we just randomly meet in life. Over this past year, we spent 32 weeks studying the words of a man named John who believed with all his heart, mind, and soul that Jesus was indeed God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, and he wrote a letter in hopes that people who would read it would discover the same Jesus he knew and that they too would believe. So if you're still searching or if you have someone or someone else or you've just joined us recently, we would point you right back to August 5th, yes, next Sunday, last year is when we began our study of the book of John, seeing Jesus through the eyes of his best friend. Go through that yourself. Go through that with a friend as you study that book together and dig deeper into God's word to discover even more. I told you last week, my prayer for these two weeks was simply this. A, that some people would learn some things maybe they didn't know about this book that we've all had in our possession for so very long. 
But more importantly, B, that it would inspire some people to dig a little deeper within that book and maybe, maybe discover some more history, but more importantly, discover some more content and what God has to reveal to us through his words. But it's also possible that the Spirit might move in someone's life because sometimes this book is a holdup for people coming to Christ. They, they have a difficult time believing its contents, and so they have a difficult time believing that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Well, maybe something that we said or something the authors that we quoted said helps them believe the New Testament at least is true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and died for every single one of us and rose on that third day. And now the Spirit's moved them to a place where they want to place their faith and trust in that name of Jesus, whether it's someone here today or somebody listening far, far away. That's ultimately the goal of everything we do at this church in the name of Jesus. So let's end the same way we started. If someone came up to you tomorrow and asked, hey, what's the Bible? How will you answer them? Father God, as we close this very brief look at the history of this incredible resource that you've given us, I just pray your hand upon all those that listen, that those with some doubts found some answers, some inspiration to search further rather than to give up. Those that have just always been curious have some things confirmed that maybe they've long held true but didn't know why. The motivation for the question, if someone asks us that, what is this Bible? We have now something to share with them. Keeping in mind that the number one component of the Bible is your son, Jesus. And he, first and foremost, is what we need to share. And the Bible is a means by which we may share his love and his life with others, but maybe the most important thing we can share is our story and how you impacted us and showed us your love and the sacrifice you made for every one of us. If we start with that and then point them to your word, Father, it will be so much richer for them as they too will begin to read the Bible in their pursuit to understand it, but all the while following along going, wait a minute, this book knows way too much about me. Father, that's your hand in the creation of your word. Be with us today. As we worship, be with those that might be moved in your direction. Be with those that might be moved to serve. With the illustration pointed out earlier, someone so generously donating the funds for people to go and serve you in a foreign country. What an incredible, incredible gift. Father, we thank you for your word. I know I can't imagine life without you. I pray that we all grow to feel the same. In Jesus' name we pray.